welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at TEH podcast slash TEH 71. We have two of our regular hosts today and a guest host. I'm Leo Notenboom, lover of coffee, corgis, computers, other things that start with C, apparently, and the Leo behind AskLeo.com. I am Kevin Savitz, creator of FreePrintable.net and FaxZero.com, two uh, websites to help you get useful things done. And it is a beautiful day here, and I have the window to my office open, so we'll see what that does to my sound quality today as cars drive by. And hi, I'm Michael Mulhern. I'm an 8-bit refugee living in a modern 64-bit world. That's I don't have any famous websites to, uh, to, to spruik, but uh, glad to be aboard. Now, you're here at Kevin's Invitation. I understand you have a lot of uh, uh, common interests in terms of, uh, like you said, 8-bit old, old technology? Oh, yes. Yes, uh, I, I, I'm an accidental uh, collector of um, retro computers. I just never threw anything out. <laughs> and also, the best thing about Michael is he's from the future. Uh, yes, he's, actually, he's recording this tomorrow. Oh, that's yes. right. No, no, yeah. you're talking. You're talking to me from yesterday. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yes. Whereabouts Technology. in Australia? Whereabouts in Australia are you, Michael? I'm in a suburb or area called Kenthurst on the northwest of Sydney. So I'm currently down in what I call my 8-bit bunker, which is underneath my house carved back into the sandstone, um, looking out over my five acres of beautiful Australian bush. Sounds awesome. Mm. I've actually, I've, I may very well have driven or been driven through your neighborhood. My wife wouldn't let me drive. We visited Australia uh, about nine years ago for our anniversary. And uh, like I said, she... Uh, she wouldn't let me drive on what we consider to be the wrong side of the road. Well, you drive on the right-hand side, but we drive on the correct side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, but we just loved it down there. In fact, the reason we ended up visiting, the reason I made it a priority was because uh, back in the day, Microsoft sent me down there twice, actually, on recruiting trips. And I just fell in love with the country, fell in love with the people that I met down there. And it was one of those, not quite a bucket list item that said, you know, I just have to get my wife down here someday. I just have to. So when our, it was for our 30th anniversary, uh, we arranged the trip and went down there. Now, I do have to admit, uh, we did spend time in Australia, but then we went over to that other island over there that... that oh, Tasmania. <laughs> yeah, that one. No, uh, we went over to New Zealand and had a, an equal amount of time there as well. So it was a wonderful trip. We really enjoyed it. And yes, when you say that it's beautiful country, I believe you. I've seen it. Yes, I've, I inflict all my friends on Facebook and uh, Twitter with uh, pictures of the beasts and birds and flowers and everything from uh, my my little my little slice of paradise. Yep, yep. <clears throat> and uh, you know, then of course everybody here responds with the yes, but but the world's most deadliest animals are all there as well. So they're trying to kill you. Oh, oh that's that's a bit harsh. We, <laughs> we we don't we don't have the top ten. I think we might have about eight of the top ten. That's enough. It's a bit harsh to say that we've got all the dangerous animals. I, I think we might have the top, I think we've got about the top four uh, most venomous snakes. Um, and then there's plenty of other things that will take care of you as well. Yeah. But none of those are in your 8-bit bunker, right? It's safe. Not there. in the bunker. Definitely not in the bunker. Um, in the warmer spots, um, say my neighbours, we get the brown snakes. Um, they're quite up there in the venomous scale. But I'm down in the gully, so it's a lot cooler and damper. So I've only got about, I think, about the eighth most venomous snake around my area, and that's the red belly black. That you have to know this is, is telling. <laughs> so what's uh, anything, anything new and exciting uh, this week, Kevin? Uh, let's see. Um, I uh, actually should have probably prepared for that. I, <laughs> it's like I didn't know you were going to ask. Uh, I, okay, so earlier, a couple, like two or three weeks ago, I saw something on, on eBay that I thought was interesting. I, I always have a kind of a persistent search for speech synthesis and, and uh, voice synthesis. And someone was selling a, uh, a, a record album 
called uh, He Saw the Cat, which is a 1963 computer speech demonstration record, which was put out by Bell Labs so that people could hear how a computer could talk. And uh, so this record was for sale and I bought it for the princely sum of uh, $1. And then the uh, seller could not find it. Apparently this person has thousands of records and could not find it. And then eventually he found it and he sent it to me for free for my trouble. So today I received uh, my copy of He Saw the Cat, um, which was a, a seven inch disc, like in the size of a 45, but it runs at 33 uh, RPM. And I digitized it and uh, digitized the cover and everything and uploaded it to our archive.org. And uh, I find it super interesting. Um, the, the computer, there's a, a, a human kind of describing what's going on and how the computer is like given, uh, the program is given the speech of what to say in punch card form. And then it will, it'll, it'll say it and then you can hear it talk and you can hear it sing. And of course it, it sings bicycle built for two uh, and all that. So anyway, it's uh, up on archive now. And uh, that was kind of how I spent Part of my day is like geeking out with, with well, that. I've got a similar one to that, not that one, but uh, I haven't got around to digitizing it yet. But uh, yes, it's another Bell's Lab um, oh. mechanical machine voice synthesis. Neat. I would like to hear that. Mm. Um, you should digitize that. Ah, sure. Cool. And yeah. we will have the, um, the link in the show notes for uh, Kevin's disc. That sounds like fun. I, yeah. I look forward to listening to that. So, yeah. Uh, my only other thing is, is I've been battling this, this problem. My computer has been crashing. My, uh, my iMac Pro has been crashing once in a while, maybe once a day or every other day. Um, I, I come in, in back into my office and I see that it has rebooted. And, and it says like, you know, you can report your problem and there's a, I can kind of look at the, the output of the problem thing that's being sent to Apple. And I can't figure out, I'm not very good at that, but uh, I can't figure out why it's crashing. But the interesting thing is every time after it crashes, I notice that the audio output for my computer has panned all the way to the right. <laughs> every time. So I have to go into this into the sound control panel and recenter it. So I, I think something that is messing, it has something to do with audio or something is, is, uh, is crashing and on its way out, it decides that I only need to use the right speaker. <laughs> So that's the that's the mystery of the week for me. That is kind of kind of odd. Yeah, I haven't taken any updates on that machine lately. Have you? That's the uh, the Microsoft syndrome, right? Where once a month you take a Windows update, and all of a sudden something stops working. Right. No, I don't think I have. I don't think I have. Um, the most recent thing I have installed was the thing that I talked about last week, which was uh, what was it called? The thing to record screen uh, screen flick to record. Um, audio and, and video from, from screens, but I haven't been using it. So I don't know. That's my most recent thing. So I guess it's the most likely culprit. But Maybe it's trying to get your attention and it's feeling unloved. I, I could not love this computer any less. This is a, Wait, what? I cannot love this computer. any. I love this computer very much is what I'm saying. Yeah, please leave the room and hand in your tech card as you like. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, yeah. So that's it for me. Uh, Michael, what about, what about you? What, well, what things are you doing? The most interesting one that I, I, I suppose it's interesting is I've been playing with, I've basically been, uh, getting a broken Apple watch, uh, working again. And, uh, to do that, I had to slice the glass digitizer off the LCD screen so I could glue a new digitizer onto the LCD. Uh, so that was fun. Um, had to get some 0.08 millimeter molybdenum steel wire. So it's about three thou. Um, and uh, tied it between two small uh, screwdrivers, like if I was going to go chasing a mouse to garrote it. And uh, I then had to gently move or saw that through the, uh, the glue space between the actual LCD and the uh, glass, and then just use a pair of tweezers to pull the glass away, uh, cleaned up the LCD, um, then sat the LCD on a small block of wood to uh, elevate it because the digitizer glass is curved edges. 
and then a, a small, very small drop of the uh, liquid optically clear adhesive um, onto the screen, plop the digitizer on and then just gently tapped it down so as to not cause any air bubbles. And once that glue had spread all the way to the edges, uh, then I uh, turned on my phaser to, uh, from stun to kill, or actually my UV light to uh, cure the glue. And uh, a few minutes later, I had a perfectly working iWatch, uh, not iWatch, Apple Watch uh, Series 3 with a um, brand new and fully working LCD screen. I'm impressed. You are a much more patient man than I. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I've now got hold of a few 42 millimeter ones. Um, so they're next on my list. There's a few people at work that are wanting to get uh, smartwatches. And uh, the easiest way was to buy some on eBay that were broken and uh, unbroke them. Hmm. Impressive. Wow. So it sounds that's, like you have, you have better, better vision and better hand-eye coordination than I do. For no, I've got lousy vision. I take my glasses off and I can see clearly for the first six inches. And then after that, life's a blur. Hmm. But uh, as long as the glues aren't too noxious, I can get down real close for the detail work without my glasses. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, it's lots, lots of fun. And then on the, the non-current tech side last weekend, we had a uh, meetup for what we call WASFest here. So it's a friend's place over at Wollstonecraft, uh, mainly for old Apple II things. So we got together on a Saturday afternoon through to the Saturday evening. And uh, yeah, old computers, uh, Apple cider and pizza um, and great company. Sounds like a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I think I've told, the I've told the story before that my... Uh, my first computer, the first computer that I owned was in fact an Apple II uh, prior to the E, even it was the edition right before the Apple II E came out. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's also one of those things where in retrospect, I really wished that I'd been more of a pack rat. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, the first computer I bought was an Apple IIc and it's currently on the desk right behind me. So as I said, that's how I got into retro computing. I just didn't throw anything out and eventually it became retro. Yep, yep. Hold on, hold on to things long enough. Although I'm not sure that's true of today's technology. There's just so much of it out there that uh, no, I have a hard time thinking that my, uh, you know, my Dell or or even my my Mac Pro, the paint can version, is going to be some kind of something valuable in 30 or 40 years. But mm. who knows? Oh yeah, well, hold on to it, and maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. I'm thinking that in 30 or 40 years, I'm not really going to care that much <laughs> if I'm even still here. So uh, my weekend was spent, uh, the, the, the way I'll phrase it is that I was testing remote access technology from my trailer. Um, in reality, what it meant was that my travel trailer was parked out in my sister-in-law's driveway because we were visiting. But I spent most of my time in my trailer, as I am wont to do. Um, just, you know, doing what I do, but from there, the, uh, the home has DSL. And what I discovered is that DSL is really, really slow, at least the DSL that they have. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, um, I continued basically as I did my entire session, you know, my entire, it's like three days up there over my, uh, my jetpack, my MiFi, which is a cellular connection, which gave me way, way better uh, speeds. I didn't try to do anything with video. Uh, that's that's too too heavy for even for that connection. But uh, everything else, honestly, the thing that I missed the most was my big desktop screen. I uh, I have the same laptop, but it just didn't have that external monitor connected to it. So it was uh, an exercise in okay. Let's see how do I do this on this screen, and how do I you know get things organized and so forth. So that was my weekend, basically remoting. Fun. So, Kevin. Yes. Art. Art. Is it art? This is one of those those things. Sometimes you look at a piece of art and go, "Really? Is this art?" And this is maybe one of those uh, those pieces of art that uh, will question you. Will question. Uh, found an article said a virus packed laptop sells as artwork for more than one point three million dollars in uh in washington um chinese artist named gao 
Odung um, had a, a uh, black Samsung laptop computer loaded with six viruses symbolizing the world's most frightening threats. It had on it uh, the I Love You virus from 2000 and So Big from 2003 and My Doom from 2004 and Dark Tequila, which I haven't heard of, uh, 2013, Black Energy, 2015, and WannaCry ransomware from a couple of years ago and uh, loaded the laptop with all those viruses and called it art. Uh, called the title was The Persistence of Chaos, and it sold for more than $1.3 million. So I've seen that headline. It's been, it's been in the news for a week or two. Mm-hmm. And I didn't bother to investigate it just because who in their right mind would pay that much money <laughs> for six viruses that for all they knew they already had elsewhere? <laughs> um, I didn't realize that this was an art project, actually. And I find it kind of an, uh, a scary one because uh, unlike, uh, or sorry, much like the Banksy art mm-hmm. that self-destructed as it was being auctioned. Yes. This is one of those things where one wrong move and your art could be another pile of, you know, mm. hardware. Well, that's true. Maybe that's part of the, the joy of it. Well, maybe uh, the buyer was getting it as a, as a special present for that special somebody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Honey, I got the you a computer. The buyer was not identified. Yeah. Um, so of, the, of yeah. the viruses that you mentioned, the only one that I recognized actually was WannaCry. Hmm. I remember the one called I Love You, but... Uh, yeah, and so big. I don't recall dark tequila or black energy. So apparently oh, they picked them because these were the most destructive viruses. Um, they have caused more than at least $95 billion worth of damage around the world, according to wow. the artist. So well, maybe they were trying to use it as a novel method of virus um, treatment. So you put six into the laptop and they fight it out and then you end up with a uh, clean uh, machine with dead viruses on it. Sure. Actually the, the other alternative is the, the AI or the, you know, the computer goes rogue scenario where the six of them fight it out. Two of them form an alliance and form something that's even worse than all six combined. <laughs> um. I just, I wonder, you know, I have over the years have had a computer with a virus or two, not six, but I mean, that had to be worth at least a couple hundred thousand then, right? <laughs> to the right person. <laughs> this, this reminds me of uh, something. I just had to look it up. Um, one, of, one of my many, I mean, I love Internet Archive and I talk about it all the time, but one of my favorite things there is something called the Malware Museum. It's a collection of malware programs uh, and viruses that were distributed in the 80s and 90s. And you can run them in virtual machines. And basically, these are, uh, they've, they've detoothed the, the viruses. You, so you can see how they ran, but they, they no longer spread. Cool. Yeah. And uh, so it's just fun just to look through the screenshots and see all the, the weird error messages that came up. And some of them are actually quite pretty. And uh, some of them are quite evil. So uh, that's the, the Malware Museum. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. What I keep um, hoping for is that over time, you keep hearing about ransomware and various um, organizations that are searching for like the encryption keys that were used by various versions of ransomware. I actually have in my basement a hard disk that has been, uh, that has ransomware, had ransomware applied to it. Turned out it was partially applied. It actually got killed halfway through. So not all of the files were encrypted, but enough of them were for it to be a problem. And um, A, it makes me wonder uh, if that hard disk is worth money to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) And um, like I said, I just keep waiting for for one of these uh, organizations to produce the, uh, the master key to it. Unfortunately, because it's not current, I don't think it's getting any attention, but it's, uh, we keep it in hopes. It's, uh, I've actually written a few articles based on it because it actually had some relatively value at a personal level, uh, images, pictures from, uh, for a friend of mine that were only on the hard disk. So uh, he lost some things permanently or at least until some kind of encryption key gets, gets found. Mm. 
that's that's uh, sad when uh, you find people who lose their their photos and other digital memorabilia and they don't have it anywhere else. What's what's really sad to me, and it's it's something that I I I refer to myself as harping on backing up all the time, but the reason I do that is just because I hear about these kind of scenarios so often. Uh, you know, people losing, maybe not, you know, their precious pictures of a daughter or something like that, but, you know, important documents or this, that, or the other thing. And it, it's so preventable, so preventable. Yeah. It, just, it just drives me nuts. And yet, uh, you know, we just keep preaching the, the backing up gospel and, and hope for the best. Well, even for uh, computer hacking crashes and whatever, um, my property's in a bushfire, uh, extreme bushfire uh, zone. And uh, you can actually buy document safes that have a um, USB port in them and you can hook a hard drive uh, into your document safe and then basically uh, you can then, say, treat it a bit, a bit like a NAS, uh, store, store all your photos on it. And the idea is that... Uh, uh, heaven forbid, if your house should burn down in a bushfire or any other uh, thermal event, the the heat, the first thing it does is it sort of like seals the USB port uh, shut. And uh, the theory is, is that as well as all your personal papers, your digital uh, photos are an, intact inside the uh, the document safe. So, I've never heard of that, but I really like the idea. That's very mm. cool. Yeah, hmm. so we haven't quite got that. We just keep a um, hard drive in our... Um, Fire, uh, fireproof document um, box here. So, what I used to do about time to put a, another hard drive with the photos in. Yep, yep. What I used to do uh, was years ago, my wife had a retail business, and of course, I was the IT department for said business. <laughs> and I made sure that uh, that computer at that business had an external drive, and I basically got two of them that I used here at home and I used there at the business. And just every once in a while, uh, we'd swap them. You know, functionally they were identical, we just swap them. So what that meant is both locations then had offsite storage uh, as a side effect of that swap. It was a relatively effective way. Um, I don't know what your internet connections are like, but now that I'm on a high speed connection, it's, you know, it's just so easy to, to set things up to upload to the cloud that that's my primary. Like I have a terabyte of my photos are up in the cloud. And even when I was traveling, even over the weekend, when I took some photographs, uh, one of the first things that happens either when I take them on my phone, they go up there, or when I, uh, when I copy them to my laptop, the next thing that happens is Dropbox throws them up into a folder up online. So, um, yeah, uh, same here. Um, now I've got stuff, uh, obviously original machine. Uh, there's a RAID, which I copy everything else to. There's an external hard drive that everything gets copied to and that lives, that uh, gets swapped with one at work. Yep. And it's all the online um, storage as well. So. The biggest loss I think that I would feel from, from a fire at your location would be that Apple II in your room. <laughs> uh, yes. That's one of the problems with retro computing is that you're dealing with rare equipment that by definition That's right. can't be duplicated. Yeah. Can't, can't 3D print one just yet. Not yet. Um, and even so, would, you know, would it be the same? Not the same. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's so. just sitting there behind me, aging gracefully. It used to be, I think they called it Snow White. I think it's now something like about um, uh, smoker's teeth beige. <laughs> Kevin, weren't you talking about a, um, a way to recolor these things? Uh, the the sun brighting. Yeah, there's a, okay, so actually, was I talking about that? There, there's a thing that's been around for years called retro brighting. And uh, basically, you make a paste out of, I don't know, what's in it, Michael? Uh, well, there's the um, peroxide bleach. Uh, yeah, as peroxide in, uh, and, and, and you make the a cream that you would uh, that you would get from a hairdresser. And 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 yeah, right. And you take that stuff. You make a, a a paste out of it. You you put it all over the computer. Basically, you take the computer apart. Um, you put it over the put this paste on the parts. You put it out in the sun for for some hours, and it it gets rid of the yellow. And recently, in the last like two or three weeks, there has been a a new quote unquote system in place that that have has gotten a lot of buzz that people are trying, which is simply putting 
the computer out in the sun. You don't put anything on it. You just put it, and I think yeah, they're calling it sun bright or something like that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I think um, that's what they're calling it. So I have not tried this myself, but I don't know. It seems weird to me that basically sun created the pro- is creating the problem slowly of, of these computers turning yellow. And now people are saying that putting them in the sun will solve the problem and turn them back to the original color. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's well, it's not, very not really the time of year for me to experiment with that as uh, we've just slid into winter. Uh, so uh, sun is not something that we get every day. Right. And today, especially not as some of the trees, which are normally in a sort of an upright um, orientation, have now got a, ooh, maybe, well, that one's about 30 degrees off vertical. A little windy, is it? <laughs> a bit windy. <laughs> Um, I think I showed Kevin a um, info radar of my place this morning. So yeah, we've got a big southerly uh, buster coming through. So I think the theory between the, the sun brighting thing is that they say that yellowing is caused over heat over years. And, but the sun, if by providing a, a lot of light sunlight without a lot of heat causes the color to change back relatively quickly. Um, I, I don't know. Looks like we won't be trying. Well, maybe we should still try it at Kansas Fest this year. Um, put Javier up uh, with his retro brighting up against uh, something that we just leave out there. Oh, that's, that's if it doesn't idea. melt. That's if it doesn't melt in the sun. Right, it's pretty hot there. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a guy uh, at Kansas Fest every year who is a is the retro brighting master, and people bring him his gear, their gear, and and he creates the, the this this peroxide paste and and. Uh, yeah. And does the retrobiting, but it would be fun to have an A-B test basically of, uh, mm. yeah. yeah. Or have a control, a sun bright and a retro bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He does wonderful work, but, uh, as I keep telling him, he's not getting his fingers on my laptop. Um, it's, it's going to just go, go old gracefully. I like the idea of, um, having it be a head to head competition. In other words, you know, have, basically as, as close to the same equipment done both ways, mm-hmm. but don't label them and have people right. try and guess. Uh, uh, I know which one will work the fastest. Uh, it, it's even same day after just uh, rinsing it off there. He, he does wonderful work. He's, as he said, you can't leave it unattended. You've got to keep your eye on it. You've got to keep attending to it. Um, it's when the people who use all these other formulas and things that are out there on the web, that they, they do it, they apply it they forget about it. They come back and they say, it doesn't work. It's gone all streaky. And of course now the only way to get rid of the streaking is to let it, all the, uh, the color age back into it. And it, it, it took 20 plus years to get that brown in the first place. So guess what? <laughs> uh, so moving on, there was a news item that uh, just popped today as part of uh, Apple's uh, worldwide developer conference that um, I think it was Randy left in our notes, even though Randy isn't with us this evening uh, or this morning, I guess, depending on where you are, the, uh, that iTunes is being discontinued and it's being broken down into three new apps. We've got an article from, uh, I grabbed one from the BBC just because it was a, a one that came across my newsfeed, but it's, I've seen a number of references to this. And the the intent is there had been speculation that they were going to shutter it because they shut down the iTunes, I think it was Instagram and uh, Twitter accounts, or they maybe didn't shut them down, but they removed all the content just yesterday. And of course that the announcement came today, they're breaking it up into three uh, different applications. Uh, Let's see, there's uh, Apple TV, Apple podcast and Apple music. I think it is, which, you know, for people that have used iTunes ever, we're all kind of sort of going, yay, yay. It's, it's about time. Mm. Um, very glad to see iTunes go away. Uh, the, uh, um, it's, it's been one of the most frustrating to use, and uh, especially if you're doing uh, any kind of online technical support, it's been uh, one of the most frustrating to help people with. Or to but do I sense a butt coming on? Well, so there, there is, and that is simply that uh, for those folks who are on Windows, I'm a little concerned because there's also a quote that says, quote, iTunes will remain unchanged on Windows platforms. 
which like again, you. well, it's, so I'm I'm multi I'm platform agnostic, right? I mean, we're sitting here with my old Mac Pro. I do my work. My, the laptop I took over the weekend was my uh, my Dell running Windows, and of course, I've got a couple of Linux boxes in the basement. But my point is that, come on, I mean, iTunes was the worst on Windows. I mean, it just couldn't you fix it there too, please? Make it go away and replace it with something usable, which pragmatically is what most Windows users do, right? They just don't use iTunes, but it just seems like they're leaving a, a huge opportunity for selling more of their content, specifically things like movies, to the, uh, um, to the Windows market. You guys have any, any well, love I, or hate for iTunes? I haven't used the Windows side, but I mean, on the Mac side, it, it, years ago, it was fine. It was never great. It was fine a long time ago. And it just got cruftier and cruftier and crashier and slower. And it was, yeah, it's certainly time to reboot it to, to start with something yeah. new. That's um, pretty much my feelings and experiences as well. Um, it's used to use it uh, quite a lot for updates and whatnot, but now you get updates over the air. Um, yeah, I was just thinking of that. Wasn't the original iPhone model something where you had to have iTunes and you'd get your your updates that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, it was it was bad. And then yeah, it became this thing where like, oh, I, I need to, you know, put music on my iPod or 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 well, back up, or back up my iPhone or whatever it was. And oh, I mean, starting iTunes and you know, and people are worried now, and rightfully so. They have music libraries uh, of 10, 20, 30, 50,000 songs. And people have been bitten by Apple before. Like, oh, we'll upload all your music to the cloud and it'll be the same. And, and then they, when, when that happened, they found that they ended up with different versions of the songs they had paid for. And, you know, and some music geeks are just like, oh, here's the, here's the live version, you know, played at, at this, you know, on this particular date. And, and, and uh, it, you know, where, where there was a, a solo like they never did before. And then that's just like gone. It's just taken away. And, and here's the generic album version instead. And, and, mm. uh, and iTunes is just like, it's the same thing. And when it's not, and people uh, I've seen people complaining like, Oh, I had, you know, music that my, the, the unreleased album that my brother made and now he's dead. And, and then it was just like gone, you know, people have been bitten over and over by things like this. And, and so I think people are scared about what this may mean to their music libraries yeah and rightfully so um yeah i i when i think that was what apple match or something i can't quite remember exactly what it was, what it was but uh, yeah. I, I i basically said no no way are you touching insert my expletive um music here um so like no no go away and paying for the order no certainly the uh the Windows folks in that sense, by naturally avoiding iTunes because it's so bad, probably have their own, uh, their own solutions to these same problems. My initial take on iTunes when it showed up on Windows was this looked like a summer intern project. They were, <laughs> you know, they were, they were tasked with taking the iTunes product, you know, the iTunes software and making it work on Windows. And they didn't really have uh, a full grasp of what everything iTunes was supposed to do. And they certainly didn't have a full grasp of Windows. And the result just wasn't, wasn't pretty. Um, speaking of not pretty, uh, again, I th I'm not sure if this was from Randy. I think it was. Again, he left us with another one. Um, Google had an outage over the weekend. Oh, this was a fun one. Which is, which is unusual. Uh, it's, you know, normally when we hear about cloud service outages, the ones we've heard of, most often are things like Amazon Web Services from time, you know, occasional, a couple of big ones just because they're so huge. And uh, even the Azure outage from about a couple of months ago made the news. But this was the first time I've ever heard one out of Google. What was interesting about it is that folks that were using Nest, uh, their uh, voice assistant uh, hardware, <laughs> all of a sudden their Nests weren't working uh, and they couldn't do things like unlock doors. Or, or in one case, the one report was that they couldn't turn on their air conditioning and they desperately needed their air conditioning. Uh, I've, I've actually run that risk myself, not through Google, but because I have a number of um, Amazon Echoes that do various things. 
And I'm pretty sure that in most cases, everything they do has some kind of a hardware backup. So if I can't tell my Echo to turn on a light, I can walk over to the switch and push the button. But apparently in this case, many folks were, were adversely affected to the point where they couldn't, which just, just, part of me is not surprised since we've had major cloud outages before, but some of, you know, part of me is, is kind of surprised that, that there are devices that are so reliant on the cloud that they just flat out won't work. And that seems like something you'd want to consider, especially for Internet of Things things. You guys? Puts a whole new aspect on uh, things when you get a, uh, a widespread power outage. Um, you know, if, you know, if you can get, so get it back local, you know, what, can, what, what can you do then? But, uh, yeah, uh, when, I, when I first saw uh, the thing about the, the nest and whatnot, I was sort of going, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I can sort of, like, as you said, reach over and use the remote control. Like, I've got an air conditioner installed down here in the bunker and I can control it through an app on my phone or um, on Wi-Fi or, or even, you know, while I'm out and about, I can go, ah, I better turn the, uh, the heat on and uh, crank it up to 28. Um, and, uh, you know, at least if I'm home, I can just walk over to it and press the on button. Right, right. Put the key in the front door and open up. So sort of like... It's interesting that, you know, the, the thing that really made the news here, well, there's two things. One is that Google had an outage. Well, that's really not surprising. All of the major cloud services have had outages of one sort or another. And they will, they will again. I mean, it's just, it's the nature of technology for these kinds of things to happen. Mm-hmm. What's surprising is that there's no safety net. Um, or safety there, might be, there, there might be 10 safety nets, but they're invisible to us. We're not supposed to know about them. Hopefully there are lots of safety nets and sometimes you fall off the trapeze and you don't hit the safety net. <laughs> well, I mean, but this seems so fundamental because as Michael's pointing out, I mean, say a power outage will do it. A, an internet outage would clearly yeah. do it. Right. I mean, if my internet goes down, my Alexa stops working. Right. Yeah. So, I've got Wi-Fi in the house, but I got no IOT to talk to my air conditioner or my front door. <laughs> Right. It's, it's just, it's surprising that that level of outage isn't somehow accounted for. I don't want a way to unlock the door. <laughs> that that oh, one's pretty sure. They walk around the back of the house and come in the back door. <laughs> you get a rock, <laughs> you throw it at the window. That's some seriously old technology. That's our retro. <laughs> so it's, it's funny. The, there was a thinking also, there was another Google outage that happened just yesterday as we're recording this. And that's Google. Now, I got I to gotta ask you guys. The Google project spelled F-I. How do you pronounce F-I? Fi. I've, I've never really thought of it. Um, I, I, I vacillate between yeah. Fi and Fee. But uh, I, 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 okay, I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, Fi. Okay, Google Fi it is. Anyway, Google Fi had a problem yesterday. Um, it's Google's uh, telephone service, and it went down for a while. Google Fi users were unable to make phone calls. And, you oh, know, that explains the, uh, the lack of um, spam calls I got then. Great. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> anyway, so, of course, you know, they're, they're pretty mad. And as it turns out, um, I've got a, an article on The Verge, but I've... Uh, that talks about this, but there's also a direct link to the support page on Google where you've got all these people just complaining and leaving the service and blah, blah, blah. Again, it's a phone service and occasionally phone services go down. Much like cloud services, the goal is to never go down, but the reality of basically any technology is that this is going to happen. If it happens a lot, yes, that's an argument for switching carriers or moving somewhere else, or, you know, you're coming up with a different solution. But the number of people that are willing to jump ship, for example, because Google Fi had one outage boggles my mind. Am I, am I out of line? No, no there's nothing wrong with being paranoid. Well, uh, complaining on Twitter wrong. is one thing. I'm going to quit because of the thing went down. I was slightly inconvenienced. 
that, you know, <laughs> actually quitting is another thing. And also, but for some people, it might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, oh, it's been kind of slow or uh, it's too expensive or whatever their problem is, is with it. And then finally, you just got to throw up your hands and go, fine, I'm done. I'm done with this. So I was noticing when the Google, big Google outage was happening, um, yeah, I realized there's not really one Google. It's, it's millions of computers, you know, around. Uh, for me, it was fine. I had Gmail. I had everything. I don't have any Nest devices, but uh, everything I needed to do Googly was fine for me, which I thought was, was interesting uh, because the, everyone was complaining on, on, on Twitter. I had a, a, an outage uh, recently uh, over the, the long weekend. Um, uh, the, at the beginning of it, um, my uh, Arlo camera stopped working. I don't think I mentioned this here, but the, uh, it wasn't notifying me when there was movement. You could just go outside and you know wave at the camera and I would get no uh, alert on my phone nor my wife on her phone. And, you know, this is one of those security camera things. And it was not, you go into the app and you it wouldn't be, it seemed like it wasn't recording. So I spent just, you know, 45 minutes reinstalling the apps and checking the settings and blah, blah, blah. And until I finally struck me like, oh, this is, this is a cloud thing, isn't it? So I just went to Twitter and just like search for Arlo. And of course there was a bunch of people complaining about it. Um, and, uh, they, Arlo was pretty good actually on Twitter once I found it about saying that they were down and they're working on it and kind of keeping people up to date. But the, the bad part about this was, is it, this was on a, a Friday going into a, a long weekend where people are going out of town and they want their, to know that their security systems were working properly. Right. And they weren't, it was, you know, so. But how long me, did it was, sorry. How long did it take for them to resolve it? Uh, a, a few hours. I, I, checked back two hours later and it wasn't fixed. And when I checked back, you know, the next morning it was, it was fine again. So the, uh, the Google outage was reported as being primarily East coast of the United States. Hmm. So it doesn't really surprise me that, that you and, and certainly I didn't, didn't suffer any issues. Um, they called it congestion and that one puzzles me. Hmm. Um, congestion implies just too much normal traffic. And you would think that they would have more headroom than that. So I have to believe that there was something else going on here that uh, potentially, you know, caused more traffic than they were expecting. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, massive amounts of more traffic, because if a little more traffic can cause this, well, then they've got a problem. They're, they're not over-engineered enough. So, right. Anyway, that's, you know, that, like you said, yes, there are always people on Twitter who will get all upset because they were slightly inconvenienced. Um, but it just surprises me that what we've come to kind of sort of accept as normal for traditional technologies like phone systems, um, we just get so bent out of shape about when they happen to their uh, you know, current technology digital replacements. So um, we have a callback to a feature we haven't had for a while. Well, okay, before we do, let's just get some of those frequency filters going. Me, 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 me. Yep. Ready? Ready. Okay. Yep. Breach of the week. Oh, you haven't done that for a long time, have you? <laughs> Feels good. Feels good. Okay. Okay. Let, I'll just now just disengage those frequency filters. Okay. So this is just a small itty bitty breach uh, compared to some of the ones that uh, you've reported on in the past, but almost a hundred thousand Westpac. Now that's a um, bank here in Australia had their customers were exposed after a cybersecurity breach. It was the real time payments platform called PayID which is for the instant transfer of money between banks, either using a mobile number or an email address. Now there's a flaw, uh, sorry, a, there is a feature in the system <laughs> that allows you to enter a mobile number or an email address to confirm the name of the corresponding account holder. Uh, so this basically puts people at an enumeration attack there. So if you've got some a nasty person, they can basically start, um, hitting the system to get um, 
mobile phone numbers, uh, pay ID for the person uh, that's attached to it. So, you know, this was one of the reasons I didn't sign up for pay ID because when I saw what it was, how it operated, I just, uh, I just uh, did a decline on the, the thing that my credit union had forwarded to me. Um, I told them that I didn't think it was a overly secure system. And uh, I'm sad to say about 12 months later, there's now articles in the paper saying, huh, maybe it wasn't such a secure thing after all. So about 98,000 of those attacks to the, um, as I said, the misuse of the pay ID functionality, they took preventative actions, which did not include a system shutdown. Um, no customer bank accounts were compromised, but uh, it's just part of the profile building um, that uh, these nasty people are doing. So they're now sort of collecting phone numbers that are associated with uh, IDs and with email addresses. So you know, they're building up their identity portfolios. So they may not have got the bank account number, but they've just got more bits and pieces towards um, getting that loan for the brand new Maserati in your name. Right. Well, that's, yeah. So, and you pointed out, you know, 98,000, 100,000, you know, is a technically a small number, but it's a significant percentage of the Australian market, is it not? Mm, It is. There's There's only about 27 million of us. Right. And so we've got four big banks, and this is one of the big ones. I was going to say, I, I mean, Westpac, of all things, um, it's not unfamiliar to me. I've heard of it before. And, uh, you know, obviously it's because when I was down there, uh, <laughs> that's, you would see this all over the place, you know, ads or, or banks themselves. So, um, yeah, this, uh, this is kind of embarrassing for them. It is. It's so, more embarrassing than anything else. And uh, yeah, so, what have they done to 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 remedy this? I'm a little a little unclear on exactly. Well, how they were a little unclear as to what they actually did themselves. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I can kind of understand. I like one of the, like one of the comments from one of the uh, financial um, talking heads uh, on our TV here. Uh, the breach raises questions whether customers should be using the pay ID system at all. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. As I said, when it first came out, I had a look at it and I just uh, hit the decline button on the uh, right. invitation that was sent to me by my bank. Yep. Yep. I can understand in some cases their reticence to share details of what they fixed because that, in a backhanded way, exposes what was broken. Mm. and potentially then could allow an attacker to say, oh, that's the weak spot. Well, let's go poke over here. Yeah. You know, and- uh, in Australia, the, these kind of breaches are required to be reported to the um, national authority. Uh, what level they, of detail? Yes. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, the national authority gets a lot more detail than what uh, the public did. But uh, um, I'm finding that a lot of large organisations here in Australia are now not overly backward about coming forward with um, breaches and issues and things along those lines. It's very rare that it was a, oh, six months ago this happened and someone's just gone and spilt the beans to the, uh, the news media, so we're going to come clean. Um, it is most of the time like this. It's like, okay, it, it's happened. We've done something about it. Uh, you know, nothing to see. Move along. Okay. Yeah. Fun times. Even our little little corner of the world is not immune to uh, these uh, events. No, certainly not. I wouldn't expect it. Um, yeah. So in other news, I ran across this one this afternoon. It really falls into the, does anybody care bucket? Bing. To, <laughs> Bing. Remember Bing? Bing, Bing turns Bing. 10. It was 10 years ago that um, uh, Bing was announced by Microsoft. Oh, sorry. I, th- I thought it, um, when they said Bing turns 10, that meant it was the number of people who are now using it. <laughs> well, um, it might be a reflection of their market share. Absolutely. Because that's one of the things I also had to look up immediately after seeing that. Because, you know, the question, of course, like I said, is does anybody really care? The current market share uh, from StatCounter shows Google at 92%, imagine that. 
um, and then Yahoo at 2.6 and Bing at 2.4. Uh, the surprising, what surprised me is that Bing is as high as it is. And I suspect that that's in part because Windows 10 pushes Bing so freaking hard. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's actually, it's the default search engine, as you might imagine, from Microsoft. That doesn't surprise me. Um, but there are scenarios where you think you've changed the search engine and you haven't, or you think you've changed the browser and you haven't. You come back to Edge, which of course does all, it work, all its work in Bing and so forth. So I think that that 2.3 is, or 2.4 is actually a, an anomaly. It's actually not even that high were it not for Microsoft's uh, pushing of the technology. The, uh, the one that really surprised me, because I thought it would have a much higher uh, percentage than it apparently does. You guys want to take a guess? Uh, duck, duck, guy. Yeah, it was going to be my guess. Yeah. That is exactly what I was thinking. We hear a lot more about Duck, Duck, Go. I would have, I would not have been surprised had Duck, Duck, Go been number two. Yeah. Uh, it's actually worldwide. It's now showing up as number six, behind uh, Google, Yahoo, Bing, Baidu, which again doesn't surprise me. I suppose. Sure. Yandex, uh, which is a Russian search engine, then finally Duck, Duck, Go with 038 percent of the search engine traffic. Wow. Just tiny, absolutely tiny. And, you know, I have to say, if I were to switch search engines, which I occasionally play with, but Google still, for me at any rate, gives me the most relevant results, and that's what I care about. But if I were to switch, I probably would switch to DuckDuckGo. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm going to switch, let's throw in some privacy for the fun of it, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with privacy being such a hot topic, I'm just shocked that more people aren't spending more time with a privacy-focused search engine. But maybe people don't care. I don't know. Huh. I, I'm surprised that Yahoo is that high. Yeah, yeah that too. I mean, people still use Yahoo? Wow. Uh, oh, you I pronounce, think, I, I pronounce it uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I suspect that too might be an artifact of how it's packaged. Because there are still a lot of people, for example, with Yahoo email addresses. Sure. And they end up using the Yahoo web interface, which, as you might imagine, has a search engine. And that search engine, surprise, surprise, is probably Yahoo. So I suspect it's not a choice as much uh, as it is a side effect of what people are using elsewhere. That's just a guess. Speculation on my part. Pure speculation. Sure. That would, to me, explain the surprisingly high position of Yahoo. Google tends to be more of a choice as people, people, you know, actually want to find what they're searching for. I don't know. Do, do either of you have a good sense for just how good these other search engines are? I mean, I understand Baidu and Yandex because they're going to have a different target audience. They're going to have a different target set of sites. But I mean, Yahoo and Bing, technically, they're searching the same stuff that Google is. Yeah, well, think, just, think, just yeah. To, to test it in a totally unbiased manner, I opened up another tab on my uh, Chrome browser um, and typed Bing. And uh, I'm informed by that there's a uh, Wikipedia uh, link that Bing is a search engine owned by Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, people also ask, is Bing better than Google? And it says here that Bing's video search is significantly better than Google's. So um, obviously Google's uh, not uh, trying to, to, to suppress this, but it's, it's video search. This is the biggest difference between the two and why Bing has a bit of a reputation as the porn search engine. <laughs> yeah, I thought DuckDuckGo was is, the porn search engine because of the privacy. Privacy, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's if you want to do it in private. But uh, yeah, so I suppose that's <laughs> why Google uh, or Chrome, uh, Google is allowing that uh, search result there. So it's a bit of a bit of a backhander to being, I suppose. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, the other thing that that reminds me of, though, is that in reality, the number two search engine is not Yahoo. The number two search engine is, in fact, YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's. In fact, Gary, um, our other host who who's not here this afternoon, he uh, I asked him a while back. He has a daughter, and I asked him, okay, when I search for a problem, I go to Google and I search for it. I find web pages that have the problem, and and now I've I've actually built a business, Ask Leo, around that specific model, peeping people searching for answers on the web. What does she do when she searches for something, when she has a problem? Where does she look for answers? And his answer was very quick, YouTube, uh, which 
okay. As a younger audience, video slash YouTube seems to be the place to be. It's one of the reasons that I started investing a little bit more heavily in YouTube uh, videos myself. But it's, uh, it's amazing. And uh, the fact that Bing has integrated some of that perhaps more closely, I wonder if Google's paying attention and we'll end up doing the same. Mm. I must admit, I do sort of search for things, um, but I normally rely on the, the Google search uh, showing YouTube links. But uh, yeah, I suppose that's uh, a, a different um, demographic and the, the way that they see and perceive the world and interact with it. Uh, they go looking for the video to explain something, fix the problem, do the whatever. Yeah. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Anything exciting coming up this week, guys? Uh, I got nothing. I got nothing. Man. Nothing? You got to be doing way. something. Yeah, probably. So uh, I, I have um, my cousin who lives in the Netherlands is currently on an RV camping trip in Canada. And what makes it semi-relevant to, to tech enthusiasm is that uh, she's been like in the back country in the Yukon. And we've been chatting via uh, WhatsApp in her case, right? Um, the internet is everywhere. Now, it may not necessarily be as fast, but it's certainly enough for, uh, for chatting. I just found that really fascinating. You know, years ago, in fact, it wouldn't even be that many years ago, you would have had to have basically said, I'm just going to disappear for a couple of weeks and hope that they showed up at the end of those two weeks. Uh, in this case, it's like, okay, I'm here tonight. I'm there tonight. Here's where we're going tomorrow. Here's a picture of the bear that I saw, those kinds of things. It's actually pretty cool. And actually, you know, it adds both a level of uh, security, comfort, I guess, uh, for both the person traveling and the person who is not traveling, who's basically keeping an eye on them mm -hmm. uh, and worrying on their behalf. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. I'm actually picking her up at the airport uh, this week, which is why it came up in this section. And uh, she's going to spend some time here. She and her husband will spend some time here at Ask Leo World Headquarters. And uh, then I'll be taking them back to the airport and they will wing their way back to the Netherlands. Super yes, fun. that internet thing is a bit of a problem at times. Uh, I've, um, last time I was at Kansas Fest, I got a, a very uh, apologetic uh, request from a manager at my work who wanted me to log in and help fix a problem. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Kansas City to Sydney. Because he knows you can. Yes, that's right. I understand. I understand. Although, you know, to be honest, this very podcast tonight is is an example of of some of the some of the wonders that we're now starting to take for granted. Um, you know, the fact that we can have a real-time live conversation between three people in three different locations, one of which isn't even on the same side of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, is, is, I mean, no, depending, you know, no matter how you measure sides of planets, be it top or bottom or left or right, um, you're not here. <laughs> and, no, and that's I'm, pretty amazing. And the fact that- we're I'm, still, I'm here, you're there, and there's very little lag. You know, we notice the same thing when we're doing our uh, Retro Computing Roundtable podcast. We've got- Myself in, in Australia, uh, we've got Sweden and Canada and various parts of the US. And really, there is very little lag. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, Sydney and Stockholm, uh, sometimes the delay does get noticeable, but uh, it, it's amazing. You can be chatting with someone. Uh, I, I regularly chat with um, people in the US and there is very little uh, lag it's 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 just it's just great you know I remember making international phone calls back in my exceedingly younger days and you did have that sort of pause between statements you almost wanted to say you know something 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 over yeah yeah it's funny uh, when I was very young my uh, I mean I would have been like five or six and I'm 61 now um, the uh, uh, my parents wanted to make a call to the Netherlands. They were immigrants, right? So their parents, their, their relatives are all back there. They wanted to make a call back to the Netherlands. And at that time, this would be like 1962, uh, the process involved uh, coordinating a connection. 
You started by calling the local operator who called the international operator who called the corresponding international operator on the other side of the pond, who then finally contacted, I think, a local operator who then made the last piece of the connection. The process of, uh, of making the call was, took something like half an hour. It was one of those things like, we want to call this number in the Netherlands. Okay, we'll call you back when we've got it set up. <laughs> it would take that long to happen. And my folks, I think they spoke for like maybe three minutes. And it was in $1960, uh, you know, $100 or something like that to make the call, mm. uh, which would have been, you know, exorbitantly higher today. So it's just incredible that, you know, I can, I can call my cousin at any time I want with a video for free um, and be connected and have it be uh, a higher quality call than, uh, than we can remember from back then. Yeah, well, sometimes I'm uh, chatting uh, as in typing away on my phone in say the messenger app with someone in New York mm-hmm. and uh, just uh, it, you know, starting to get a little bit complicated and just go, they just type uh, ring you. Yep. and then you just just hit the uh, the the voice connector and you go okay evan let's go over this again yep yep makes total sense always evan too <laughs> all righty all right well i think that's a good place to wrap her up yep very good the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh71 and of course you can also find us on facebook and twitter at the teh podcast Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye.